Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. I said on last week's show that I was not going to be able to come in to do my show this week. Why am I here? Well, I was supposed to actually be off uh, this la- uh, this coming week and a half, but circumstances unfortunately changed that. So I figured while I was still in Nashville, I might as well host my show, especially considering that I had time, not to mention I had an obligation to myself to review two huge movies that came out this this past weekend, the weekend of July 21st through 23rd, 2023. And these movies were so huge. Not only are they expected to do really well at the box office, but there's also been talk in the press about the, the, the battle between these two movies. And that's probably a good uh, progression for movies that are still or movie theaters that are still recovering from the pandemic when they had no choice but to shut down and we all got our movies from streaming and while we still get a lot of movies from streaming we don't absolutely rely on streaming like we did a couple of years ago or even you know a couple of months ago but anyway there are two huge movies to come out on July 21st 2023 The first movie, which I am positive is probably going to do the best financially, is Barbie. And Barbie is a film that, if I were any younger than 18, the only way you would get me to see this film is if you dragged me into the theater kicking and screaming. Because as far back as I can remember, I hated Barbie. Probably for different reasons than Gloria Steinem or Andrea Dworkin or any other famous feminists would have, but basically... Yeah, I've had a lifelong hatred of Barbie. And of course, I saw this movie, you know, not only because I'm seeing it as a film critic, but also because it looks like it's it looked like it was a lot of fun. You have Academy Award nominees such as Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling starring in this film. And you also have some other really noteworthy actors and actresses in it as well, such as Issa Rae, Kate McKinnon, Alexandra Shipp. Will Ferrell, uh, Dua Lipa is in it too, and the list goes on. And there are also some very um, good cameos. But in this film, it takes the mythos of Barbie as well as Barbie's reputations, good and bad, and puts them into one film. And I think a lot of the times this movie hits very well. A lot of the times it is very funny. And there are other times where it kind of misses the mark, but a lot of times it does a lot of more good than it does bad, so to speak. But we're introduced to the main Barbie in this film, who's actually not the only Barbie. She's just known Uh, colloquially as stereotypical Barbie. And she's the one who's played by Margot Robbie. She's the one who you expect when you first think of Barbie. She's tall, she's blonde, she's drop-dead gorgeous. And she, as well as a wide range of fellow Barbies, all reside in Barbie land, which is a matriarchal society where all women are self-confident, self-sufficient, and successful. And in the case of stereotypical Barbie, she's also very glamorous. She lives in Barbie's dream house, which 
didn't really make sense to me as a dream house because it doesn't have walls, but I guess uh, Mattel made it uh, glamorous. But in any event, that's where a lot of the Barbies live. And you sort of see from the very beginning exactly how they live. And Mattel, who... um, who is uh, one of the film companies that distributed this film alongside Universal Pictures, has a lot of fun with the the Barbie mythos, as well as some of the things that make Barbie unrealistically glamorous. For example, she doesn't have flat feet. She's always on her tiptoes. When she showers, she doesn't actually use water. When she eats and drinks, she sort of mimes it as opposed to actually eating or drinking. And this is the way that stereotypical Barbie as well as the other Barbies in Barbie land live. But then one morning, stereotypical Barbie wakes up. She realizes, unlike other mornings, she's actually groggy when she wakes up. When she turns on the water, water still doesn't come out, but she finds the invisible water cold. And what's even more jarring is she has existential thoughts about death and even more horrifying to the other Barbies who live in this world, she also has flat feet. So she meets up with another Barbie whose name is Weird Barbie, who's played by Kate McKinnon. And Kate McKinnon is hilarious in this film as usual. But the reason she's Weird Barbie is because the girl who played with her previously burnt her hair, gave her this really ugly makeup, and essentially made her look weird. But she does have this sort of existential connection between Barbie land and the real world. And stereotypical Barbie goes on a journey to the real world, kind of like Buddy the Elf does in the movie Elf, and tries to discover who her owner is and also why she is experiencing these thoughts and also these quote-unquote physical deformities. And along with her on the ride is stereotypical Ken, who is played by Ryan Gosling. And he's, he's good looking, but he doesn't really have too much of a personality, but I actually really liked how Ryan Gosling's Ken is eventually developed in from being at first Barbie's potential love interest to ultimately coming back to Barbie land and being an antagonist when he learns about the patriarchy of the society in the real world, at least in America. And I I actually thought that when Ken went toxically masculine, it was pretty funny. He didn't go toxic masculine the same way the Trump family did, but still, it, it it was funny the way he did it. And also, some of the cameos that happen in Barbie land are also very funny. So, stereotypical Barbie is in the real world. She's trying to find the girl who owned her, which kind of throws a wrench in what actually separates Barbie land from the the rest of the real world. Are there other uh, lands based out of Mattel toys? Is there a Hot Wheels land, for example? Is there a Max Steel land? Well, the movie doesn't exactly explain that in this film. And also, it's not really clear if Barbie land is another dimension or if this exists in the mind of a child. The movie kind of seems to go back and forth with that. And also a little bit confusing is the part that Will Ferrell plays. He actually plays the CEO of Mattel 
who orders the capture of Barbie and Ken and tries to get them back to Barbie land. And even though Will Ferrell is very funny in this film, his role, as well as the role of the other CEOs in the film, isn't particularly well explained. I think he could have been actually a great antagonist, not to mention a really funny antagonist. But again, his role is is kind of pushed to the side, especially when the conflict of this film comes into play. But... I thought the movie's best parts actually were when, A, stereotypical Barbie starts to question her existence and also gets really depressed about her role in Barbie land, not to mention the rest of the world. And also when she teams up with a fellow real-world Barbie enthusiast who's played by America Ferreira. And the scenes between Margot Robbie and America Ferreira, especially when America Ferreira's character points out the contradictions uh, of Barbie's image as well as the place of women in society, uh, how, how they're criticized harshly for their personalities regardless of what kind of personalities they have, I thought that was actually the smartest part of the film. And that's actually probably the least surprising part of the film when you consider that the co-writer of the film and the director of the film is Greta Gerwig, who, if you've seen her other movies, either ones in which she's directed or ones in which she has starred, you know she is a modern-day feminist. And I think she actually brought a lot of the glitz and glamour of Barbie in the sense that the kids, not necessarily girls, who love Barbie, the the things that they love about her are on the screen there, but also some of the things that are the bad and the good about Barbie's image. And I really liked that, and I enjoyed this film a lot more than I thought I would, but at the same time, it's still not perfect. I think that Barbie Land should have been a little bit more established as a place, and if it existed in the mind of a child versus actually being a place that people can go, if it actually established the rules of Barbie land a little bit more like that, I think it probably would have been a stronger film. But again, it could have been a lot worse, but I do give Barbie my rating of a very high checkout. I think that there was a lot more good that this film did than bad. And I did like the direction that Greta Gerwig, as well as her co-writer and husband, Noah Baumbach, took to bring Barbie onto the big screen and also make it a film that most people would like as opposed to either just girls, gay men, or other Barbie enthusiasts you might expect. I do think, however, that some of the SNL cast members or former SNL cast members here, like Will Ferrell or Kate McKinnon, could have had a hand in the writing process, and the film could have been a little bit stronger as a comedy, but most stuff in Barbie worked, and for somebody who would not have seen this film before they were 18, I was more impressed by it, and I did think a lot of it was very funny. to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Oppenheimer. And before I get into the plot as well as the cast and some of the other things that are critical to my reviews, let me just say that you've probably heard from such uh, from a lot of media outlets that Oppenheimer is going head to head with the Barbie movie this weekend. And that's most certainly true. Undoubtedly, Barbie's going to make a lot more money than Oppenheimer will because Barbie has a lot more appeal than the man who was instrumental in the invention of the atomic bomb. That's just kind of the way it is. But again, I do like that People are taking Oppenheimer seriously enough, it being a historical film as well as a movie that is three hours long and rated R, so much so that they say that it is in competition with Barbie. I think that's kind of funny, but again, Oppenheimer is a film that is very dynamic for a lot of reasons, and it is based on a true story. Christopher Nolan wrote the screenplay, and the film was based on a book by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwood. And this movie is a biography as well as one that questions the role of the atomic bomb in society, as well as also some of the good and bad that came from the invention of the atomic bomb, some that J. Robert Oppenheimer himself, who's played in this film by Killian Murphy, questions, especially during the last part of this film. And throughout the film, it not only talks about J. Robert Oppenheimer's life, as well as his entry into the world of physics, but the plot thread throughout the film is whether or not J. Robert Oppenheimer had connections with the Communist Party, something that was not a big deal during World War II when we were, when we Americans were assisting the Soviet Union in bringing down the Nazi regime as well as the Axis powers. But it became very controversial in the 50s when Senator Joseph McCarthy began waging a war on communism and developed the House of Un-American Activities. And J. Robert Oppenheimer, while not formally charged with being a communist, was brought before a panel that was not a legal panel, and his life was consequentially picked apart, for better or for worse. And the movie gets to the invention of the atomic bomb, which J. Robert Oppenheimer himself did not exactly invent, but he was the head of a team of astrophysicists who created the atomic bomb, and he was instrumental in getting that put together. And the atomic bomb was dropped three times on record. The first time was the test run. The second time was when it was dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th, 1945. And the third time was when it was dropped three days later on Nagasaki. And the invention as well as the use of the atomic bomb is still controversial to this day. President Truman, who was president during the last few months during World War II, it's claimed that the atomic bomb would end all wars. Well, it, he was correct in the sense that it pretty much ended the world wars, but he wasn't correct in the sense that it ended all wars. And also, the fact that the atomic bomb hasn't been used on any other countries, be them Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, goes to show 
that there are nuclear weapons that other countries have developed that are being pointed in various directions. And the sense of world peace that we have right now, which isn't even really a very good sense of world peace, is predicated on the fact that atomic bombs are pointed in various different directions like a game of chess. That's another philosophy for another time, but the movie gets into how Killian Murphy plays J. Robert Oppenheimer and the conflicts he feels both when he is developing the atomic bomb as well as the aftermath of the end of World War II when the Japanese finally surrendered. But it gets into all his his life and his connection, including some of his actual connections to the Communist Party, which happened before World War II began and also happened when the American Communist Party was not necessarily sympathetic with Russia. It wasn't necessarily against America as well as against democracy, but it also existed on the pretenses that the communi- communism was an ideal created by Karl Marx and later popularized by Vladimir Lenin that America could potentially benefit from, but it may not necessarily work in America. And that was the root of the Communist Party, especially in the 1920s and the 1930s after the Russian Revolution when communism seemed to be working in- particularly well for Russia and, well, the USSR and other countries surrounding the USSR. But in any event, Killian Murphy plays J. Robert Oppenheimer incredibly well in this film. And there are also some very strong supporting performances in this film by just about everyone in this film, but most especially Emily Blunt, who plays J. Robert Oppenheimer's second long-suffering wife, Kitty Oppenheimer, who also has a background in science, but because of the roles in of women in society, she is relegated to the role of a housewife in her first and second marriage. But the two of them have, if you'll excuse the pun, a chemistry, but it's also a chemistry that's put to the test, especially when J. Robert Oppenheimer earns fame and fortune for his role in the creation of the atomic bomb, as well as his notoriety, not just with the doves in American society, but also with the House of Un-American Activities. And Matt Damon actually plays a soldier by the name of Leslie Groves, who is on his way to becoming a general in the armed services. And he is the one who actually enlists J. Robert Oppenheimer to create the atomic bomb or create the team of scientists who would ultimately create not just one atomic bomb, but several atomic bombs, as well as other developments in atomic bombs that would ultimately not be dropped, but still would be considered incredibly dangerous weapons, even more so than the one that was dropped on Nagasaki, which was probably the most powerful atomic bomb that has been used to date. Hopefully, knock on wood, knock very loudly on wood, it will be the last atomic bomb that will be used, but that's no guarantee either, sadly. Also noteworthy in this film is Robert Downey Jr., who plays the role of the real-life Louis Strauss, whose full name was Louis Lichtenstein Strauss. 
And he was an American businessman, philanthropist, and naval officer who served two terms on the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. And one of the plot threads of this film, um, Oppenheimer, is the fact that Louis Strauss actually was one of the instrumental people who not only served as a mentor as well as a financier for J. Robert Oppenheimer, but also became one of his indirect worst enemies when the House of Un-American Activities began to question Oppenheimer as well as his role in the not just the development of the atomic bomb, of course, which he unquestionably had a hand in developing, but also his his direct or maybe even indirect role in other countries, especially the USSR, creating their own atomic weapons. And the scenes that take place in the 50s with Louis Strauss, as well as other actors in this film like Jason Clark, who's the primary key investigator who's interviewing J. Robert Oppenheimer throughout this film and instigating J. Robert Oppenheimer. All these scenes take place in black and white, where ironically, the scenes early on in J. Robert Oppenheimer's life up to the Manhattan Project are in color. But I think that's actually a good stylistic move, because in the 1950s, not only were was black and white movies and especially TV um, the norm, but also the thinking of the American government was black or white in the sense that if you're not with us, you're against us, especially when it came to the controversial House of Un-American Activities. There is a lot to unload about Oppenheimer, and it's more than just a biography, and it's more than just a critique of the development of atomic weapons and their roles that penetrates into society today, whether or not the layman would be aware of it or not. And Oppenheimer raises a lot of philosophical and moral questions that I don't think that very many other biographies on film would ultimately raise. So Oppenheimer is a very dense film, but I, I mean dense in the best sense of the word, which is why I give it a knockout. I think it is Killian's Mur Killian Murphy's best role to date. And that's saying a lot considering his previous repertoire in and his roles in movies like 28 Days Later, which isn't probably as serious as Oppenheimer, but it's one of those films that also deals with some other real world questions in a fictional scenario as well as a fictional society. But all the acting from everyone involved in this film is quite amazing. I think that Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, and Robert Downey Jr. are among the best supporting actors in this film, and I hope that they get some credit that they deserve later on this year. I'm talking mainly about award season, but Oppenheimer is, if you'll excuse the pun, a very explosive biography, and it is one that has that at three hours long does have some draggy parts here and there, but once you get into the probably the blood that Oppenheimer has on his hands and the moral weight he probably had on his head after the success of the Manhattan Project, you begin to maybe sympathize with him if you don't already see him as the problem rather than the solution. But Oppenheimer raises a lot of very 
noteworthy questions. And overall, it's just a great film. Undoubtedly one of the best of the year. Will it be the best of the year? We, of course, will have to see. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Wham! This is a documentary about the 80s duo of the same name. And this is a documentary that premiered on Netflix on June 30th. So I'm a little late to the party when it comes to reviewing this documentary. And to be honest with you, it's, it's one of those films that I was... It's one of those films that I saw a little while ago, uh, weeks ago, actually. And when I'm coming to the studio to do my show, I usually write down the films that I've seen and about which I have very strong opinions. And every now and then, there's a movie that I've seen that I get into my car, I drive, and then I'm driving about five minutes back home. And then I realize, damn it, I forgot to review that film. Wham! is one of those films that I keep forgetting to review. And because I saw two huge movies this week, I'm playing catch up with this documentary Wham. And Wham is a group that I didn't grow up listening to. They were popular when I was in diapers, literally. And they broke up when I was just learning to walk. Or at least it was it was around that time, maybe even a little after that time. So I didn't grow up listening to songs like Careless Whisper or Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. I just remember seeing the music videos on VH1. And no doubt, Wham! had a lot of really catchy songs. And some of them I love. Some of them are a bit of, of guilty pleasure. I think Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go is one of those songs that is an earworm. It had a really tacky music video that was very popular at the time based on how much it was played on MTV. But yeah, the, the, the song itself is incredibly infectious. And I like a lot of George Michael's stuff when he was a solo artist as well. When I was in high school, it was very uncool to like George Michael, especially because by that time he came out of the closet and I grew up in a very homophobic town. So homophobic, in fact. Well, I, I could get into that a little later. But in any event, this movie, Wham!, details the origins of Ram. Of, of Ram. Of Wham!, and it, it details them through archive interviews and footage. And it tells the story of how George Michael and Andrew Ridgely relived the arc of their Wham! career from being best buds when they were in school in the 70s in London to becoming 80s pop icons. And even though I do like a lot of songs by Wham! and I've liked a lot of George Michael's repertoire, there were some astonishing things in this film that I just didn't know. For example, I saw some of George Michael's childhood photos and compared to how glammed up he was in the 80s and how absolutely blue steel cool he looked in the 90s, I was very surprised to see him, you know, with 
with the longish hair, sort of the uh, mop top haircut and with glasses. He looked a lot like I looked when I was in grade school, believe it or not. And I hope that doesn't deter my uh, girlfriend um, or my fiance at all. But I guess that's another story. And apparently Andrew Ridgely, who is unfortunately the lesser known of the two members of Wham. If you, if, if somebody asks you who the members of Wham are and you reply, George Michael and the other guy, you're not alone. But the role that Andrew Ridgely had in bringing Wham the ultimate success that it, um, it had, as well as a lot of Wham's musical influences, really can't be denied. But there were some other parts of Wham's story that really surprised me. For example... When Wham first uh, signed to a label, they actually released a rap single, and it was called Wham Rap. And for rap that came out in the early 80s, as well as rap that came out in the early 80s that was done by white people, it sounded really good. I mean, it was it's obviously very catchy, and I'm actually very surprised that didn't make some of the list of best rap songs of the 80s along with Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, as well as Rapture by Blondie, and maybe the list even goes on, because not only is it really infectious, it's also really good rhyming that probably even put Vanilla Ice to shame. But there's a lot more to Wham that I really enjoyed and admired about this documentary. For one, there is really no narrator other than Andrew Ridgely and George Michael themselves, who seem to be kind of narrating their own story in real time. And it's great, not only the archive footage, which which is obviously plentiful because of the footage that's taken from the BBC and MTV, amongst other places, but also some of the still photographs that they included in this documentary are also really good as well. And I liked Wham's music before, but now that I actually saw a documentary that's just as insightful as many episodes of Behind the Music from the late 90s and early aughts, I actually not only like Wham, but I also really respect them. Of course, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, the music video, is is a video that's really dated in comparison. And I just really enjoyed this documentary as well as I learned a lot from it. And the reason I'm I'm actually kind of surprised that I didn't review this earlier is because this is one of those documentaries on Netflix that once I turned it on, it was one of those things where I'll watch it for about 15 minutes, then I'll probably go get a snack or do something else. But I stopped watching this documentary only when I absolutely had to. Like when I'm taking a lunch break at work and I absolutely have to get back to work. But it's it's really a testament to how good a documentary this is. And it's also worth noting that this documentary was directed by Chris Smith. And Chris Smith is not exactly a household name the same way other documentary directors like Ken Burns is. But some of the films he's directed so far that are either on Netflix or not, especially the ones that are on Netflix were excellent. For example, he directed a controversial documentary called Jim and Andy, the great beyond, which detailed Jim Carrey's metamorphosis into playing Andy Kaufman and some of the method actor like techniques that Jim Carrey used. 
very controversially in some instances in order to get into that part. And it's a film that took that was released 18 years after the film man on the moon came out. And it's kind of easy to see why, but it was still a very engrossing documentary. Even if you may not love Jim Carrey after seeing it, but Chris Smith also directed the film fire, which, which has the full name fire, the concert, the the greatest concert that never happened, or I'm sorry, the, uh, correction. The, the full name of the film is Fire, the Greatest Party That Never Happened. And that was one out of two documentaries that came out about the Fire Festival that was doomed from its initial planning, but then ultimately became probably, they say it's the best concert that never happened, but they probably would have said that if it was canceled. But instead, the, the musical acts didn't play, but... Some people went to that island that was allegedly owned at one point by Pablo Escobar and had the worst time not only living there, but also getting home. So Chris Smith had one great documentary there uh, in Fire, and he has been nominated for seven primetime Emmys. I don't think he was eligible to be nominated for an Oscar for Fire, but he probably should have been because even a lot of people say that of the documentaries that were made about fire, the one directed by Chris Smith that I just described was the best one. And he's directed other documentaries as well. I don't have a lot of time to get into them, but Wham! is probably the one that has been a straight biography and really nothing more. It talks about Wham!'s rise to fame as well as their breakup when they were on top. And there was one instance where I was watching this film where I actually got mad at George Michael because in 1984, Wham had four number one hits and they also came out with their Christmas classic song, Last Christmas. And that song went to number two on the charts. The reason it didn't go to number one was because it was held off by the song, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. And George Michael was reportedly pissed off that Last Christmas didn't go to number one, even though he was one of the singers in Band-Aid, along with Boy George, Bono, and some other noteworthy British singers of the 80s. And I, I was just thinking to myself, you had four number one hits, and you had one that not only went to number two, but is kind of living forever right now. It's still one of Wham's best-known songs. How could you be so selfish? Well, I guess you you don't get that famous un- unless you have a massive ego. But still, even after getting pissed off with George Michael from hearing him say that, I still respect the guy as an artist and actually as a person, especially when you consider some of the struggles that it, that he tried to conceal when he was within Wham!, And there were struggles that he concealed even during his very successful career as a solo artist, 10 years, more than 10 years into that. But Wham! Altogether is a film that elicited a lot of emotions out of me. It certainly had some nostalgia, but it also had me both cheering on Wham! as their rising to fame as also being really concerned about the friendship between George Michael and Andrew Ridgely. And the film doesn't end with telling you what happened to Andrew Ridgely in particular. And the career that George Michael had after Wham! kind of goes without saying. 
But it does put a lot of Wham's successes into perspective, especially their continuing popularity, even with people who weren't alive when they were at the height of their popularity. So Wham! is a very entertaining documentary, and it's also one that is thought-provoking in a way, and and Wham! gets my rating of a knockout. I really not only admired Chris Smith for making such an engrossing documentary, but I also ended this having actually a lot of respect for Wham!, even though I got really annoyed with George Michael, but then again, at the same time, I also admired his honesty as well as the fact that he could put his honesty on tape and it could still live on seven years after George Michael's untimely passing. So Wham is definitely a a very excellent documentary and it's one that you will enjoy as well as learn from, even if you don't necessarily know a single song by Wham let alone who the two members of Wham! were. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of July 23rd through July 28th, 2022. And there's one movie that's actually subject to be released in theaters on July 22nd, 2023, which is a Saturday and not part of the week that I just mentioned, but I'm just going to mention it anyway. The movie is called He Killed in Ecstasy, and this is a film about a young doctor who kills himself after a medical committee terminates his research into human embryos, considering it too inhumane. So I'm not exactly sure if this film is science fiction, if it's a drama, if it's based on a true story. The only category in which this film is given, according to my research, is horror. So I guess after he kills himself, he maybe comes back and kills the medical committee. I don't exactly know. It would make an interesting plot, but this is the only synopsis that's given to me. So the movie is directed by Nikolai Malden, who also co-wrote the film. And the movie stars Ellen Wing, Miles John Dalton, and Antonio Mayans. This is a film that I don't know is going to be in a theater near me. If it is and I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. But I highly doubt, based on when it's subject to being released, that I am going to see it. But the films that will be released on July 28th, at least two of them, guaranteed I will see these. The first one that is subject to being released in theaters on July 28th 
is the latest film from Walt Disney, and the film is called Haunted Mansion. Why it's coming out in July as opposed to October, I don't exactly know. The last time that Disney released a a Halloween-themed film in July, it was Hocus Pocus, which came out 30 years ago. It was a critical failure, but it was also a commercial failure as well because people were not expecting to see a film that not only is Halloween-themed but also takes place on Halloween in July. Why Disney decided to release it in the summer, I don't know, but it was a decision that came back to bite them. But this film, Haunted Mansion, is not only based on the notorious ride at Disneyland and Disney World, which is an incredibly fun ride, not to mention spooky without being traumatizing, but it is also a remake of the Haunted Mansion film that came out 20 years ago that starred Eddie Murphy. I haven't actually seen that film, but I know it by reputation, and it's not a very good reputation. But this film looks a little bit more promising. It doesn't have the same plot as the original Haunted Mansion film with Eddie Murphy, but it it still looks promising based on the cast as well as the story here. So this Haunted Mansion involves a single mom named Gabby, who's played by Rosario Dawson, who hires a tour guide, a psychic, a priest, and a historian to help exercise her newly bought mansion after discovering it is inhabited by ghosts. So I guess she moves into this mansion not believing it's haunted, but then ultimately she discovers that it is. This movie has an amazing all-star cast. It includes Academy Award winner Jamie Lee Curtis, Academy Award winner Jared Leto, Uh, Danny DeVito, Winona Ryder, Owen Wilson, Tiffany Haddish, Lakeith Stanfield, Dan Levy, and the list goes on. Uh, Hassan Minaj from The Daily Show is also in this. So this is an incredible cast. Also incredible is the fact that this is directed by Justin Simeon, who is not a household name, but he's directed some really um, dynamite movies over the last decade. Dear White People was one of the first films that I put on my top 10 list at the end of 2014, which was the first year that I did words on film. He also directed another film that was more controversial uh, in 2020 that was a Hulu original that was called Bad Hair. And the reason it was so controversial was because it dealt with the taboo subject of black women's hair particularly when it came to uh, getting weaves. And Bad Hair, I thought, was a very funny film and a very intriguing film, but I can understand why some people didn't like it. And still, I thought it was a good addition to Justin Simeon's repertoire. And Dear White People was such a great movie that was ultimately developed into a Netflix original series for which Justin Simeon actually wrote many of the episodes and directed some of them. But this is his third feature film. It is undoubtedly his most commercial. And I'm very interested to see what Justin Simeon does with this otherwise relatively stale franchise, which Eddie Murphy didn't even get off to a very good start. So Haunted Mansion is a film that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on July 28th is a film that's called Talk to Me. Whereas Haunted Mansion is a horror comedy, Talk to Me is a straight-up horror film. 
And this is a film that comes out of Australia and it's directed by brothers Danny and Michael Philippou, who are native Australians. And Danny and Michael Philippou have, and I hope I'm pronouncing their last names right. In terms of directing, they've directed such TV series as Rocka Rocka, which they helped create, as well as some other music videos, some TV movies that involved uh, UFC. And they also worked on other notable horror films, such as The Babadook, which was the last great horror film to come out of Australia. But Talk to Me seems to be one of those films that might actually surpass Babadook in terms of its scares. So Talk to Me is about a group of friends in Australia, presumably around the Sydney area, who discover how to conjure spirits using an embalmed hand, and they become hooked on the new thrill until one of them goes too far and unleashes terrifying supernatural forces. So this film starts out with a common horror-themed trope where a bunch of goofy teenagers do stupid things for the thrill of it, and they end up getting it over their head. But this movie actually does look like it has an original premise to it, and I'm very interested to see how this film is. A lot of the actors in this film are people I don't know, and a lot of them are native Australians, but not the native Australians that a lot of Americans know. They include Sophie Wilde, who's not only Australian, she's also black, and you don't see a lot of black Australian actors who have movies or TV shows that make it to America, either on streaming or in any other ways, but... She's about as foreign to Americans as Vegemite, but she does have some promise being the star of this film. Some other actors in the film include Joe Bird, Alexandra Jensen, Otis Jondi, Miranda Otto, Marcus Johnson, and Alexandria Stephenson, amongst other people. But Sophie Wilde is the star of this film, and I'm very interested to see how this film is, and this is a film that guaranteed I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on either next week's show or on a future show. But in addition to Haunted Mansion and Talk to Me, which will undoubtedly be the biggest movies of next weekend, the other two movies that are coming out are films that look to be more independent. The first one is an animated comedy that's called The First Slam Dunk. And this is a film that looks like it's anime, not just animated. But this follows Ryota Miyagi, who is a 17-year-old boy who, after losing to his elder brother Soto when he was a kid, struggles to accomplish Soto's dream to, to be a basketball star. And the director and writer of this film is Takihiko Inoue. I hope I pronounced that name right. And some of the English language uh, stars of this film, or the people who provide the voices, include Luis Bermudez, Paul Castro Jr., Abby Espiritu, and Masaya Fukunishi. So there are some Japanese names there, but there are also some Latino names as well, but not usually the celebrity voice artists that are recruited by large companies like Disney to dub over some of these Japanese films. But this is a film that definitely looks interesting and has a plot that could definitely appeal to a Western audience. 
But I don't know if this is going to be a film that's going to be coming out in a theater near me. If it is and I'll see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the final film that is subject to being released in theaters on July 28th is a movie that's called The Mistress. And this is a horror thriller film, not a porn movie, even though it sounds like it could be the name of a porn film. That's not a parody film. But it's about newlyweds who move into their dream home where they discover a collection of 100-year-old letters from a young woman who committed suicide after being abandoned by the owner of the home. That sounds very heavy. It's a movie that's directed and written by uh, Greg Pratikin, who I don't know. And the stars of the film include John Magaro, Chaston Harmon, uh, Ilya Marzolf, and Kat Cunning, amongst other people. But no actors that I know personally. But this film looks like a, a very heavy one. It's probably a film that's going to be released on streaming before it is released in theaters, but I don't have any information on what streaming platform on which it will be released. But if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. So that is all. Those are all the films that are subject to being released in theaters, at least in the Western world, i.e. the United States and Canada for the week of July 23rd through July 28th. But there are some movies that will be released on streaming that week And I'll get to them as soon as I can. For example, there is one film that's being released on Netflix on Tuesday, July 25th, and the movie is called Dream. And it's not, it it is undoubtedly not the first film to be named this, and it probably won't be the last either. This is a film that looks like it comes out of Korea, and it it stars an actor by the name of Park Seo Joon, who plays Yoon Hong Dae who is a professional football player or soccer player who is on disciplinary probation after being caught up in an unexpected incident. But then he becomes the coach of a thrown together soccer team. But as time passes comes to sincerely care for and trust in the team members. This sounds like a very prototypical sports film that I'm actually kind of surprised comes out of Korea because I think that the Korean film industry would probably tend to sidestep those typical plot um, devices that American films find themselves caught up in. But Dream is a movie that I might see, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And on Wednesday, July 26th, there's a documentary that's going to be premiering that's called Missing, the Lucy Blackman case. I don't know who Lucy Blackman is. I don't know how she came to be missing, but I think I don't even need to give you the plot of the movie. I just, you basically know that she's somebody who went missing and either she died or they found her. But usually they don't make documentaries out of people who are not confirmed dead or people who have basically just chosen to live life outside of the public eye. So I can't exactly say how this film is going to end, but I kind of already know what it's about based on the title of the film alone. So I don't think I need to elaborate upon what this movie is, but there are actually a ton of Netflix films that are coming out, not on July 28th, on Friday, as you might expect, but actually on Thursday, July 27th. There are four of them, and I only have a few minutes to talk to you about them. And I'm not going to give you the plot because I only have a couple of more minutes 
and I have a show that is following me. So I'll just give you the titles of the films. One is a documentary that's called The Lady of Silence, The Mata Vejitas Murders, and that is coming out on July 27th. The Murderer, which is an unoriginal title for a film, but it is a movie, a presumably fictional film, that's coming out on Thursday, July 27th. There's another film that is also pretty unoriginal in the title department. The film is called Paradise. That's also coming out on Thursday, July 27th. And finally, a film that has a more original title, which is called Today We'll Talk About That Day. That looks to be a fictional film, not a documentary, although that would make an intriguing title for a documentary. That is also being released on Thursday, July 27th. And finally, on Netflix on Friday, July 28th, There are two, actually there's one original film coming out. There's another film that is going to be appearing on Netflix, but does not look to be a Netflix original. The original movie on Netflix is called Miraculous. It's called Ladybug and Cat Noir, the movie. So the full title of that movie is Miraculous, Ladybug and Cat Noir, the movie. I don't know who Ladybug and Cat Noir are, or if this is a noir about a ladybug and a cat, literally, I don't exactly know, but it is a Netflix original, and it is subject to being released on Netflix on Friday, July 28th. And the last movie that is not a Netflix original but will be premiering on the platform is a film that's called Hidden Strike, which, again, has a more original name than the other titles that I have just given you. But Hidden Strike is actually a movie that stars Jackie Chan and John Cena. That is a great duo for an action film. So it's a film that, according to IMDb, was made in 2023. I don't know why Netflix isn't declaring it as an original. I also don't know why it's not premiering in theaters, because I would love to see this film on the big screen. But maybe it will a little bit later. I don't exactly know. But all I know is that it will be presumably premiering on Netflix on Friday, July 28th. So if if you choose to see it, it is on Netflix for your viewing pleasure. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.